Hi there. It's great to see you. It has been too long. It has been too long. I think Pastor Mark told you a couple of weeks ago we were out and about and uh, we were in Boston, New Hampshire, Connecticut, New York City, Brooklyn. Uh, we were everywhere uh, teaching pastors. And then uh, I came back. I was home for two days. And then we went to, uh, we went, my family and I, we went on vacation, which was a vacation for them. For me, it was, uh, I was writing most of the time. I have two books and my publisher is very committed to me being on time with both of those books. So um, I spent a lot of time writing in the mountains of Georgia, which there ain't much. So anyway, I had really no distraction because even we rented this house and the TV didn't work. So it was like, well, what am I going to do with my free? Well, I'm going to write. And then when I was bored, I wrote more. And uh, so that was that. But while we were there, we didn't do this hotel. We rented this house, like I said. And uh, one night, and it was a pretty, pretty big house. And so like the kids all had their own room and stuff. And it was like kind of an upstairs, downstairs deal. And um, so one night, everybody else is asleep and Mia is almost asleep and she wants me to sit with her before she falls asleep. So I said, okay. And it was one of those moments that we had like a real heart to heart. And like, you know, when you become a parent, it's, it, this is one of those moments that you're really, you're wanting to have with your kids. And, you know, you hope you're going to get more of them, but I didn't, you don't get tons of them, but I got one of these like um, amazing moments, uh, you know, to share your heart, you know, and so I was able to share my heart with, with my oldest daughter, who's five and a half. And so I, I um, was telling her and I said, Mia, there was a time when mommy and poppy uh, couldn't have babies. And uh, we tried to have babies for 10 years and nothing. And, uh, but we, you know, we kept, we kept praying and trusting God. And then one day mommy was pregnant and then nine months later you were born. And so you were the answer to all of those prayers. And that's why you're very special to us, Mia. And I said, you and your brother and your sister are so special to us, but you are special because you were God's first answer to our prayers. And, uh, Mia, I just want you to know how much I love you. And, uh, I mean, I'm saying these words to her and I'm tearing up as I say these words to her and she turns after and she says, Bobby. And I say, yes, Mia. She says, um, could you say that again? Cause I wasn't listening. Uh, I'm like, sheesh. All right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough moment, you know, like unconditional love is expressed and the other person wasn't listening. Um, and, and you know, and I think the reason that it's, it's such a build up and then it's like, oh, you know, because, um, to say that you love someone, to express that, you know, in a million different ways is, is so powerful. And that's why I think parents will do anything, buy anything, will go anywhere to hear it from their kids. Adults will go to extremes to say it, display it, prove it, to win the love of another person. I mean, think about this if you can. Do you remember, uh, those of you that are married or, or you're, maybe you're dating, you've been dating for a while, you're engaged. Do you remember the first time you told that other person that you loved them? Do, do you remember that? I mean, do you, I don't know about you, but the first time that I was so nervous, the first time that I told Carrie uh, that I loved her. And uh, if you're dating, then you know this. You know that saying I love you to somebody else is a calculated decision. You say, isn't it? A mo-? No, it's a calculated decision because it can't be too soon because that's weird. I know it's only our first date, but... Like, you don't ever want to start that, you know. And then, you know, I should have said this seven years ago when we started dating, right? That's little, waiting a little too long. So it's somewhere in, in, the, somewhere in that, you know, gap. It's, it's there. Um, but the last thing you want to do is to be the guy that says to your girl, I just want you to know that I love you. And she's not ready to hear that. And she's like, all right. Cool. Fist bump. You know what I mean? You don't want that, right? Because, you know, you, you want to know that it's going to be reciprocated. Uh, you don't want, hey, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, that's just, and it's because I think it's, um, you know, we use love for everything. Um, we do. We, we use love just to, to express the deepest of things that, that, that we care about. And then to just talk about like milkshakes, you know, we'll talk about our love for milkshakes. Um, my son, Xander, who, by the way, my son, Xander, today is his three-year-old birthday. Uh, so, you know, if you see him, thank you. Uh, if you see him, 
tell him, tell him happy birthday because uh, now what he will tell you is today is his little birthday. Uh, because yesterday we had a big party for him. But today we're just having a couple of friends over and we're going to have like a little party for him. So we've been telling him all week. Saturday's the big party. Sunday is the little party. So I saw him today, this morning. He woke me up and, uh, and he says, Bobby, it's my birthday. I'm Xander, happy birthday. Yes, it's my little birthday. So anyway, so he might tell you that if you tell him it's his little birthday. Um, but my son loves everything. My son loves everyone. You know, like no matter, you know, it, it is, you know, and he'll talk about his love for everything. And uh, what's funny is my son tells me and he's um, Xander is like glued to me. You know, he calls me during the day at work just to see how I'm doing uh, and ask me when I'm coming home. And then as it gets like later, you know, like after four, he's calling at four. 4.30, 5, 5.30. He's like, Bobby, you have to come home. You have to come home. You know, and so anyway, then once I hit like 6, then it goes into 15-minute intervals. Uh, after 7, it's like every 30 seconds he's calling. Um, but anyway, um, but I'll t- my son tells me, he's like, he just randomly, he'll just say, Bobby, I love you. And then he, he'll give me a kiss on the cheek or hug me. And um, if I don't, and I'll usually respond, I, I'm not usually, I always respond, but if I don't respond fast enough, um, he'll respond for me. So like with what I usually say. So if I say, um, uh, I'll, I'll say, uh, if, if he'll say, oh, I love you, Poppy. And he'll give me a kiss. And then it takes me a second. He'll go, I love you too, big boy. That's how he'll do. His, 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 that's, that's, what is that? That's my Poppy voice. I love you too, big boy. Uh, and that, that, so that's his thing. But my son will talk about his, his love for cars. He got like a bunch of cars presents yesterday for his, for his birthday. He was very excited about that. And then he'll say to me, he'll say, Poppy, I love people. Uh, that's good. And then I, I think I told you this a few weeks ago. He said to me, uh, Poppy, I really love going poop. Uh, like that. He was very excited about that. Um, so I'm like, well, I'm, I'm happy for you. Um, and and now, now here's the challenge. Here's the challenge all of us have. The challenge is, is that love has a definition. But, and when you don't know what it is, right? Because I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. <laughs> Foreigner reference number one. Uh, in the message, uh, when you don't know what love is, it ruins relationships. Now, here's what I mean. Uh, some people believe that love is a feeling and they'll say, well, what is love? Well, love is a feeling that you feel when you feel a feeling you've never felt before. That sounds about right. Well, love is a feeling you feel. You never feel a feeling you never felt before. Sounds about right. And, uh, well, that's not, well, what's wrong with that definition, pastor? Well, here's what's wrong with that definition. Besides the fact that it's not um feelings fade feelings fade when i first started dating my wife which was about i don't know a long time ago uh it's going to be 20 years now uh in the uh, december but i was nervous just to hold her hand and so the first time we went to a restaurant for dinner i had like butterflies in my stomach i couldn't eat could you you know can you guess if that feeling has passed or not right it's long past um, but it, and, and you say, well, isn't that sad? No, it's not sad. It's great. Because could you imagine if those feelings like never went away? And now we've been married for 15 years and we have three kids. And, you know, I'd come home from, from the office and I sit down to dinner with my family. And it's, I just can't eat Listen, these butterflies. And, you know, and, and, and it's just right. But some people, here's what they think. They, they want the new car smell of relationships. Now, once again, you know what the new car smell is. Like, you know, some people say it's the smell of freedom. It's actually the smell of a car payment, but that's another story. That's another message. Uh, but, you know, it's a, basically it's a chemical they put on the dashboard. But, uh, but here's the thing is that, you know, it's a sad day if you have a new car and you don't smell it anymore. Like, oh, it's not new. What happened? Uh, and listen, but, you know, when, when the new car smell fades on a relationship, it doesn't mean that you love any less. It simply means that it's changed. The connection is deeper than simply emotion, than simply attraction. It's more than that. It's greater than that. I've been married to my wife, as I mentioned for now. Um, we've been married for 15 years. And I've never loved her more than I do today. I never loved her more than I do today. And here's the thing. is that, But it's different than the new car smell phase of a relationship. And it's not that... You know, to think that that euphoric stage of getting to know each other is love is not only a wrong view of love to maintain, 
it's impossible to maintain. It's, it's impossible because, listen, this is one of the reasons why people self-destruct their relationships over and over and over again. It's because the, the relationship gets to a certain level, and then when that newness wears off, and it's like, well, yeah, you've told me that story before. Oh, you took me there before. Oh, there really isn't anything new in this, is there? And then they start looking for ways out of the relationship because once it's not new, it must be bad. And it must be going south. And so that's why they, they just think and then they just break it off. It's why people break up their marriages because they aren't quote-unquote feeling it anymore. Listen, they believe that love is a feeling. And guess what? Even though love is the very thing they want, their, mis, their, their poor definition of love is what ruins their hope for a love that's real and genuine and lasting. Others think that love is accidental. And we even use it in our language, right? Oh, you know, I fell in love. As if it was like, I had no idea that it was going to happen. So I was walking down the street and I fell into a ditch and met a girl there at the same time and fell in love at the same, you know, like, well, what, what happened there? And, and it's just, I was walking, I fell and, and that was it, you know. Uh, listen, you don't fall in love. In that sense, no, you walk into love. You take significant steps with a person and love begins to flourish because you invested. The same way that a gardener sees flowers grow. Why? Because he invests and tends and gardens and waters. The same thing happens in a relationship. But if you believe that love is accidental, then can I tell you something? That things like divorce and adultery, those are on the table. Well, how could you say that, Pastor? Well, because... You know, if, if you're married and you just happen to fall in love with the person that sits next to you at the office, then there's no stopping that. You just kind of fell into it. It was accidental. Well, you know, if you're sleeping with someone other than your spouse, well, you know, you didn't mean for it to happen. But once again, how can you control that if it's just accidental in the way that it happens? And listen, do you see how this understanding of what love is is so powerful? Listen... A proper understanding of love can take your life to heights you never dreamed with the person that God has created for you and you for them and, and, and in your relationship with God. But listen, it also has the power, a misunderstanding of love has the power to destroy your life and the very thing that you want most because every person wants to be loved and every person uh, wants to give love. It's one of the basic desires that we have as, as human beings. But see, if I don't understand what love really is, the very thing that I will go about seeking in the wrong way is the very thing that will prevent me from getting the thing that I desire. You see, that's why this section of 1 John that we're going to cover is so important. And if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open with us to 1 John chapter 3. If you have your smartphone, you can open your Bible app, 1 John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. And this is the section that John focuses on. He's going to talk about what love is. He's going to talk about these foundational truths about love. And what we, that, listen, when we have the truth about love, these, and these foundational truths are things we can build our life on that actually strengthen our relationships, reveal the character and nature of God to us, and show us not only what love is, but how to go about experiencing love in our lives. So here's where we begin. It's in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 is where we're going to start. It says this, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins neither has seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you, he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil and the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this person, purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention... Here's the first of the three truths that I want to show you about what, what uh, you know, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me no more. Um, 
There may be several of these uh, throughout this message. Uh, But listen, real love, number one, real love is grounded in truth. It's grounded in truth. There's a contrast that John gives as we read those verses. He talks about the works of Jesus, and then he contrasts that with the works of the devil. Why? Because he wants to show us something. That when Jesus speaks to us, he always speaks the truth because he loves us. When the devil speaks, he always lies to us because he hates you. Now listen, um, real love is always grounded in truth. Because without truth, it's not really love. And, And maybe you've noticed this the same way that I've noticed this. That you and I, for the most part, will only receive truth like hardcore, you know, hey, I got to have a heart to heart. We'll only receive truth from people that we know that really love us. Total stranger walks up to us and says something hard truth to us and we're offended by it. Someone who loves us says it to us and we say, yeah, it's hard to receive, but I know that you're right. And what's the difference? All that's the only difference is the relationship that we have, not the truth itself, but the relationship that we have with the person. Now, let me explain it this way, because I, 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 a few years ago, I created this equation that I, it really helped me in understanding this idea. Because you, you can't really go like full-on hard truth with someone that you first meet. Now, I'm not saying you don't lie, you know, openly lie to people, but understand that the hardest truths that people need to hear are usually not going to come from perfect strangers. They're going to come from people who we have relationship with, whom we have credibility with over the course of time. So here's this equation that I I give you. I call it the truth equation. Here's what it is. Length of time plus level... I'm sorry. Length of time plus depth of relationship. Length of time plus depth of relationship equals level of intensity. Length of time plus depth of relationship equals level of intensity. The longer you know a person, the better that you know a person, the deeper the conversations that you can have with that person and the deeper the truths that you can share with them. And listen, this is true for you, for me. It's true for all of us. Let me explain this way. Um, it was a few months ago. I was at, I was at the gym. On the tra- I was running on the treadmill and... Uh, this guy comes up next to me. Now, at the gym I go to, there's like these four treadmills that are coveted because they're like a little more, they got a little more like gadgets on them and whatnot. So I got one of the four and then, so I didn't want to lose them. So I'd lose it. So, but then this guy start, there's the one next to me to the right is open and he, um, this guy starts running next to me. After like a minute though, this guy starts emitting like this B.O., Sorry, I got to tell you the truth, though. This, this guy just, I mean, like, starts sweating. And it's like, I mean, if they could bottle it, they could, like, raise the dead with the stuff. I mean, you know, it's bad. And uh, anyway, so I'm like, I, I, you know, and, and here's the thing. It's like, you know how it is? Like, you ever do that? You get on a treadmill, and then right when you start running, somebody leaves. Like, hey, what did I do? Well, that's why I was in a situation I was in. So I'm running, and then this guy shows up, and he smells so bad. And I'm like... Let me just leave. But no, if I leave, then he's going to think that it was him. But then you stay like a little bit longer. And then, you know, when you're running, you get like this, like, oh, I want to hit this particular goal or time. And then you pass it. And then you're like, well, you can't just stop at like, you know, seven minutes or eight. Nobody stops there. You got to stop at like an even number. Right. And, you know, so that's what happens. So I I pass. I'm like, I'm going to go to the next thing. But this guy just I just can't deal with how he smells. And then it's like, well, what if I stop and just go to another treadmill? Well, that's awkward. Then he's going to know it's him. So I'm in this real problem because I don't want to leave the, the treadmill that I'm on because I happen to like it. And then, but this guy is just like, just killing me ne- next to me. And then, um, so, you know, I've got my, my headphones in and, um, and I'm running. And then, um, I don't know if it's his wife or his girlfriend, but someone comes over and uh, she hands him some water and she says to him, she says, honey, you really smell. And now, listen, first, let me just tell you something about me. Sometimes I think things and sometimes I say things thinking I only thought them. Okay. So I'm running and then this lady says to her significant other, honey, you really smell. And I say, testify. And, and I say that out loud to which the two of them turn towards me. (laughs) 
And then I realized what I've said out loud, but I thought I was just thinking it. And so I just did what, what, it, just what a normal person would do, you know. So I just, I saw what I had done and then I, I, I just go, testify, hallelujah, come on. And I just, I just made it like I was listening to gospel music and I was singing out loud. And then I was actually listening to Van Halen, but that's not really the point. And uh, so then I, they start, they're like, what's up with that guy? And I'm thinking, what's up with that guy? And, uh, but I got out of it. Kids, don't try this at home. Um, but I'm telling you, listen, like I could have said, you know, because see, she can say that to him. If I start, we're running, he shows up and I say to him, honey, you smell. That's awkward. Besides the fact that I just called him honey and we don't even know each other. And, uh, you know, and, and listen, it's just why, because the length of time and depth of relationship equals the level of intensity in which you can speak to someone and share truth, the, the, the real hard truth with someone. It's just the way it is. You know, the same thing is true in here. Listen, the longer period of time that you're here is to the, to, in the, the longer, the depth of your relationship with God and your relationship even to this church and with me is to the, the level of intensity that you can take the teaching. Because listen, if you're sporadic and you're erratic in your attendance, uh, sometimes there's going to be a week you're going to come and there's a lot of hard truth. And you're like, oh, whoa, I, I can't take it. Well, what's wrong? Well, I haven't really been here. Well, why is that? Well, because, well, you know, I was at a bar mitzvah last week and I had a thing going on. And, you know, and so there's all these things to why there's, it, it prevents the length of time and the depth of relationship, even within the context of the local church. So listen, the longer period of time that you're in a local church, the longer period of time you can create a depth of relationship and even understand my style of teaching and how I communicate the scriptures. Here's what will happen. Your ability to receive the level of intensity and my ability to communicate with a higher level of intensity, knowing that you're going to be able to receive it, grows. Now, I say all of that because I want you to notice a couple of things with me. Because John uses in this section the same word twice to communicate two very different things. He uses this word manifest. He talks about why Jesus was manifest in the flesh. And it's this whole idea, once again, if real love is grounded in truth, then why was Jesus manifest? The first one he says is in verse 5. He says he was manifest to take away our sins. He's meant to take away our sins. That is the work of self-sacrificing love. When someone dies for you, you will listen to what they have to say. Why? Because, once again, the depth of relationship equals the level of intensity in which we can speak. That's why Jesus, or, or speaking of Jesus, Paul said, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. But the second thing that he shares is in verse 8. He says, for he who sins was, is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this reason, the son, the, for his purpose, the Son of God was manifested. So what's the purpose? What, what's the, the reason? It's so to destroy the works of the devil. Listen, Satan doesn't have any good plans for your life, in case you weren't aware. His aim is to wipe you out. Before you came to know Jesus, his aim was to keep you from coming to Jesus. Now that you know him, his goal is to keep you from really walking with God and being effective for God in this world. Jesus would say it this way in John 10.10, 10, The thief has, does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The bottom line on the works of the devil is this. Satan's goal is to get you to believe that there's always a better way than God's way. Listen again. Satan's goal is always to get you to believe that there's a better way than God's way. That's what happened to Eve in the garden. She said that, oh, you know, I can't eat of this fruit. Why? Because um, we'll surely die because uh, if, if, if we eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of, the, the, of good and evil. And what does the serpent reply? Put it in your notes. It says, the serpent replied and said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Can I tell you something about that verse and what Satan says to her? That there is a half-truth in there? Were their eyes opened? 
When they ate of it, yes, because that's what it says a few verses later, that when she ate of it and her husband with her, her, their eyes were open. But what did they see? Their own nakedness. There was shame that was associated with their sin. And so what he does is he just kind of twists it. Well, you're not going to die. Everything's going to be fine. Your eyes are going to be open. Don't you want your eyes to be open? Don't you want to be like God? Well, they're not going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's what happened. There, she ate of the fruit. She was, uh, her eyes were open, but here's what happened. She became evil because they became sinners. That was the problem. They didn't become like God. And that was the lie. And that's, the, that's the problem. Listen, this is the, this is the work. That happens over and over again. The work of the devil that happens constantly. This twisting of truth. This twisting of what the Bible has to say. And so he tells people that integrity is overrated. Oh, not that it's bad. Not that having integrity is bad. But I'm saying you can still bend the truth. Right? I mean, you know, there's got to be a line here somewhere. And if you just, you know, just find where the line is and don't go, even if you cross over a little bit, I mean, that can't be that big of a deal. I mean, God certainly has to be able to understand your situation being unique. And he tells couples they'd be happier if they found someone else. I mean, sure, God hates divorce, but listen, I'm sure your situation is different. And what's all of this? Lies parading as alternate truth. And that is just the work Of the devil. But see, God proved his love. God proved his love when Jesus died for us. And you know what he does? He loves us enough to tell us the truth, even when we don't want to hear it. Even when we're like, oh man, this is that's not what I want to hear. Even when we don't want to hear it, he loves us enough to tell us the truth because he proved that he loved us. Because listen, he's the one that said, I am the truth. Look what happens in verse 10. He says this, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing that I want to show you. Not only is real love grounded in truth, real love is given to action. It's given to action. Listen, lots of people talk a good game about love. Oh, I love you, man. Whatever I can do for you. But real love is seen in our actions and what we really love is seen in what we act upon. Um, Now, my I'll tell you this and my friends get on me because they say that I don't like animals like, oh, you know, you hate animals. I don't hate animals because and they say that because I'm opposed to having pets. Uh, I'm totally anti pet. Um, and, you know, no offense to those of you who are like our PETA members, uh, you know, but I'm to- but I'm actually totally fine with animals. I think they're delicious. No, um, I- I'm totally fine with animals. I just like to keep the relationship professional. Uh, that is, you don't see me sleeping out in the woods. I don't want them sleeping in my house. I mean, that's just kind of just, you stay in your area, I'll stay in mine. But a few years ago, this has got to be like seven, eight years ago. Uh, Pastor Mark, who you heard from last week, um, he talked me into getting a fish uh, because he told me, it was before we had kids, he said, you don't have kids, it'd be good for you to have a fish, at least. It's a, it's a way for you to warm up to having animals. So somehow on some day, I mean, I was, I was probably on like, you know, cold medication or something when he talked me into it. But I said, okay, I'll buy a fish. And he had one of, he had two of these in his office. He had these two Japanese fighting fish. And I thought, you know, at least if I'm going to get a fish, let's get one that's aggressive. Um, so I said, okay. And so it was, uh, we went uh, down here to the pet place. Uh, and so I, I bought one. I bought the bowl. I bought the rocks. I bought the fish. I bought some food. And I even bought a little palm tree for the bowl just so the fish would know that he lives in Florida. And, um, it's, <laughs> and so anyway, um, so Mark helps me put the whole thing together. And so I'm studying, it was a Saturday and I was studying for a message that I was going to be teaching the next day. And so I get up from behind my office and, and what I did I, in my old office, I used to have this credenza, uh, behind my desk. And so I put the fish on the, cause it was a credenza that had like a filing cabinet. So I put it on the filing cabinet, um, so it was there. So I walk by the fish, the fish bowl, and I hear this, 
I hear this crack. I'm like, oh, no. So I called Mark, uh, and I said, listen, you got to come over. I think the bowl is cracked, um, and so we got to, you know, fix it and, uh, or take it back or something. So he comes in. He says, all right, pick up the bowl, and uh, we'll move it into the kitchen. And then from there, you know, we'll put the fish in a cup or something, and then we'll go and return the bowl. And I said, fine. So I go, I lift, I go to lift up the bowl, but the crack was at the base. And so when I lift up the bowl, all the, the base and the bowl parts separate. And so all the water comes out into my files. And I'm like, ah! And um, it's like fish water. I'm not really sure what the technical term is for that. But it's like fish water going everywhere. The little blue rocks are going everywhere. Even the palm tree was caught up in all this. And then the fish is just kind of flapping around because, you know, that's just how it goes. And so I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to take the fish and flush them down the toilet as a burial at sea. And so, um, so Mark yells for somebody else in the office to get a glass of water and bring it into my office to put the fish in the water. But he, he looks and, um, and before I can do anything, Mark looks and he says, the fish isn't breathing. And so he takes the fish and he puts the fish in his mouth with like the little, you know, fins hanging out. It's like the story of Jonah, except in reverse. Okay. And um, so Mark is performing CPR on the fish. And then finally, which seemed like an eternity. For this person to come and get a glass of water and bring it into my office, comes over and he goes, and he spits the fish into the bowl, the water, and uh, and I'm still in shock over this whole thing. And I said, Mark, that has got to be the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. Sushi, I understand. That I cannot. And... He, and he says to me, uh, and he says, Bob, I love animals. What did you expect? I did not expect that. And um, so anyway, you know, and by the way, did that, I am sure in whatever fish language there is, there was the prayer of Jonah uh, that that fish was praying. I'm sure of it. You know, where he said, like, remember Jonah, Jonah chapter two, he says, Lord, I am in hell itself. Uh, that's what my guess is. Get me out of this thing. I will preach to the Ninevites if I have to. Uh, and so anyway, now you can, I can talk about my love of all things aquatic, but only Mark has done CPR to bring a fish back from the brink of death. And this, and I'm, you know, and that's why I'm telling you, it's like, we can talk about what we love, but listen, love is given to action. I, I saw something and I was not given to action. I was given to flushing. And that's the end. And he was like, we got to save this thing, you know. And it was like, it, it, was, it was something. Um, now, once again, I told you that John has used, used this term manifest twice, right? He uses this term manifest again in verse 10. And he says, in this, the children of God and the, the children of the devil are manifest. How is it that they're manifest? How is it that they are seen? Whoever does not practice righteousness. It's a matter of actions. It's seen in our actions. Not seen in what we say. It's seen in what we do. And that's why John uses the story of Cain and Abel as his illustration. Um, I want you to notice this. That he says that the person who loves God does not sin. He says that in verse 6. He says that again in these verses that we read. He says it again in verse 9. Um, and what does that mean? And sometimes we read that, and I, I didn't cover it in the first section because I knew it was going to cover it here. But he says, um, I mean, it sounds like, man, is God expecting perfection of us? Can I just tell you that God is not expecting perfection? This term, does not sin, in the original language, in the Greek language, refers to a continual action. It is a continual sin. It speaks of a, a pattern of life. All of us struggle. All of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the mark. All of us fail at times. But the question you have to ask is, what is the pattern of my life? What is the pattern that people see in my life? Is it a pattern of my desire to obey God in all things? And sometimes I fall short of that. 
Or is it a complete disregard, giving lip service to the things of God and simply doing whatever it is that I want to do? Cain's life was a pattern of disregard for the things of God. It was lip service to worshiping God. His life was sinful and evil. And that's what the story in Genesis tells us. In fact, I have a, there's a section of verses in your notes that I put there. Let me read them to you um, in Genesis chapter 4. It says, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also, by the way, you want to underline that, the, the offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock. You want to underline that, the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with his brother, Abel. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up and killed his brother. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? For the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You see, what was Cain's problem? Cain's problem was that the two of them, Cain and Abel, both offered to the Lord. And Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's was accepted. Now, if you're a person who's a bit inquisitive, you're going to ask the question, why? Why was Cain's offering not accepted? Why was Abel's offering accepted? What made one better than the other? And there's lots of people have lots of ideas, but let me just give you some of the... the let me give you the, the answer here. Um, Cain... Well, let me go back further. When their parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, there's a curse that came with that. And not only was there the, a curse, but there was also expulsion. Um, Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden that God had planted. And if you remember that there was an angel that was set and was, uh, you know, with the fiery sword and all that, for that they would not come back um, into uh, the garden. So what happens is, but then, even though they sin, God gives them, they sin, God gives them skins to wear, to cover up their nakedness, right? And so, even at the very beginning, after the very first sin, there was a sacrifice that took place. And that is a pattern that God is showing Adam and Eve to now teach to them and to their children and the generations that follow that, there is, that blood covers sins. Cain doesn't like that idea. He's not a shepherd. He's a farmer. And so what he's going to do is he decides, well, I'm going to give an offering to God, but I'm just going to bring in my organic veggies, and that should be enough. And it's not enough. God rejects the offering. Abel is a shepherd. And so he brings his offering, firstborn of the flock, which, by the way, becomes the pattern throughout the Old Testament. And the whole reason that there's this pattern of blood covering sin, as bloody as people might think it is, and maybe as distasteful in a modern culture that we might think, um, it's a picture for us leading us ultimately to Jesus where his blood ultimately forgives. It doesn't just cover sin, it absolves and forgives sins. But here's the thing that happens. Abel is a shepherd, so now he gives of his flock to God, and that gets accepted. Because, once again, it's in this pattern that God has established. Cain doesn't want to do that. He doesn't, because if he has to offer an animal, he's got to ask his brother. He's got to maybe barter with his brother. Maybe, oh, hopefully not, he would think, he would have to be on the receiving end of his brother's kindness. Oh, you don't have anything to offer God? Well, here, let me give this to you. And you see, when you're a person that's filled with pride, anger, and contempt, you can't ask a favor of the person that you despise. And see, this becomes really the issue. 
Not only was it an issue of the heart for Cain and Abel, it was an issue, and this just brings us to an important point, that we don't get to pick the way that we worship God. God picks that. Our job is simply to obey what God has set up. A couple of years ago, after a service, I had a guy come up to me to argue about me. I had I'd given a message, and, and uh, the passage, the book that we were teaching, the message was really about um, finances and giving, and then there was some stuff on... Um, you know, saving and investing and all that. But there was a section just on giving that I had talked about, about tithing. And he just, he wanted, after the service, he just wanted to argue with me about it. And so he was telling me that giving God 10% was too much and that he had decided he was going to give God 5% and what I thought of that. And I said, I think that's great. I think you're 5% away from being obedient to God. And um, he didn't respond like that. With a laugh, he responded kind of angry. Um, And he didn't like my answer, and he started arguing with me a little bit more. And then it just came to me, and I said, oh, you know, I just realized something. You don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God. You see, I didn't write the book. Right? I mean, I've written books. This just isn't one of them. Right? And um, and I said, I just teach it. I teach the book. Um, I'm a Bible teacher, and so I teach what it says. And so... If you don't like what it says, you see, you got to take that up with management. And I'm not in management. I'm in sales. Um, and so, you, you know, so that's not, this isn't, this isn't me. And, and, and I'm telling you, by the way, it's very freeing. Um, the point is this. God sets the rules on how we worship him. Our job is simply to obey what he has set forth. Jesus said, if you love me, make up your own way to worship. That's not what he said. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, the same thing is true with baptism. Baptism, you've heard me say, is not a great suggestion or a good idea. It's a command of Jesus. Baptism is the outward reflection of our inward decision to follow the Lord. And let me, let me say, if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized as an adult, then listen, you're disobeying God. And, and listen, it's an easy thing to remedy. It's an easy thing to fix. Listen, um, What you don't want to do is be in the position where you're just kind of deciding which commands are okay and which, I can can overlook that one or or whatever. Um, Do you know, um, you know, I think one of the things that happens with baptism is that it's not hard. I think if we became Christians and God says you got to climb Everest, you know, to really earn it. Like if you really want to be saved, you got to find the flag at the top of the mountain. We'd all be there climbing, but it's not. He gives it to us. Salvation is a free gift. And then he says this. He says, one should be baptized. Well, you know, I got this thing. And well, 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 hold on. Well, what's the problem? Well, why can't we just obey what it is that he said to, get, to, to represent this outward reflection of the inward commitment that we've made? You know, and, and, and here's the thing. Listen, we're doing a baptism today after this service. And you can meet us at the water Right, we have the baptistry set up, or as I like to call it, the jacuzzi for Jesus. Um, and you can you can meet us there. And he, listen, here's the thing: um, we oh, but I didn't, I'm not dressed for a baptism. Listen, we have a shirt for you, shorts for you, we have a towel for you. We've brought everything that you need to be baptized. Here's all you need to bring: is a willing heart to obey God. That's it. That's all that you need to bring. Listen, because love is not doing what we want. And then giving it to someone else. Doing what we want and giving it to God. That's Cain worship. That's Cain style. And God doesn't accept that. Instead it's loving God the way he wants to be worshipped. It's obeying the commands that God has set up for us. Here's the last section. Last two verses. Here's what he says. Verse 13. Do not marvel my brethren. If the world hates you. That we know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Third thing I want to tell you, last thing, and that is that real love is a giver of life. We live in a world of cynicism and hatred. What we're watching coming out of Colorado is not just something that's happening over there. It's something that starts in here. What happens is just an expression of what's happening in here. I mean, we live in a 
world that is cynical, that is um, just, I mean, that's, that's just so polarized and, and divided. You know, there's all these polls that come out about how divided our country is. And it's like, and I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, but because both sides do it. Um, but you know, you know what this really is, how divided our country is? Listen, you go back 30 years as to when all these negative ads started. Well, this person did this, and this person did this. And you know what it does? Event Now, it's, it didn't happen with one ad. It's this cumulative effect that happens where now we are more polarized, we're more divided, uh, one side hating the other side more than ever. Why? It's this cumulative effect. And it's the same thing that happens. Listen, um, you, have, you have a person that's just like, you know, you play the, it's like, you know, playing a video game where somebody shoots somebody. Hey, that, what's, what's the big deal about that? Sure, maybe you play it once or twice, not a big deal. That's all you do. You know what happens eventually? Now you want to figure out what it's like to really kill somebody. And so then you order a gas mask, and then you buy a gun, and then you buy a semi-automatic weapon somehow, and now you're off to the races. And it becomes, listen, and it's this, and once again, well, what's the problem? And so now we're like, we're create, trying to create all these externals to, to, to fix the problem. The problem starts in here. That's why John says, listen, don't marvel if the world, if the world hates you. Why? Because we've passed from death to life. And how do you know that, you're, that we're brothers? Why? Because we have, a, we have a love one for another. And listen, let me tell you something. The one thing that separates followers of Jesus from everybody else is this innate love that we have, not only for our God, but we have for one another. And that doesn't mean that Christians don't get angry. There's plenty of reasons for us to get angry about stuff. But listen, don't be known as an angry person. And this is one of the things I hear people talk about their righteous indignation. The problem is they're, they're always mad. That's not of God. Always angry, always mad, always hostile. There's reason to get angry. Listen, when you hear about what happened here, you know, a few days ago, that should make you angry. When you hear about human trafficking and things like that, it should make your blood boil. Why? Because you love God, because you love others, it should make you angry. Because your love for God and your love for others demands it. Because God hates the exploitation of the defenseless. And that means that we should hate the exploitation of the defenseless as well. But listen, you don't let that make you an angry and bitter person. You know what the Bible says? It says that love doesn't give up. It says that love believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Love never fails. And guess what? Um, Christians actually believe that. Other people just read it at weddings and that's it. Christians actually believe that that's the truth. But we live in a world that tends to believe that it's money that never fails. It's power that never fails. It's anger that never fails. It's revenge that never fails. Uh, these are the things that never fail. But instead, here's what Christians believe, that it's love that doesn't fail. You see, believing that love never fails isn't just thinking happy thoughts that it's going to work out. It doesn't just mean we sit on the couch and just hope it's going to happen. Believing that love never fails means that people who are committed to love never failing step out and produce right outcomes by the will of God. And that God blesses our efforts. Listen, because real love isn't... Remember back when we talked about what, what is love? It's not a feeling. It's not an accident. What is love? Here's what it is. Love is a choice. It's a choice that we make. We decide to love. The only way that we love people who are difficult to love is by choosing to love them. The only way that couples stay together after the new car smell wears off is because they make a choice to love. That's how a person who loves after they've been hurt, when everything in them says to leave, to hate, to resent, to get bitter, they make a choice to love. My friends, that's what makes the cross so amazing. It's the picture, it's the model, it's the template of what love is. That Jesus died for us, that he was tortured, that he allowed his own creation to kill him. To prove something, to show something, 
to model something. That love never fails. And see, greater than the momentary pain of the cross was the goal that he had in mind. The picture of you and I in the kingdom eternally with him, forgiven, restored in our relationship with God. Spending eternity with him, that was greater than the momentary pain. That's why the cross is the picture of what love is. And so that's why at the close, we're going to spend a moment celebrating, commemorating communion together. Because Jesus said something. He said that it was a picture. Communion was for us to remember. To remember. To remember him. To remember what love does. To remember what love looks like. Because love never, never, never fails. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this picture that love never fails. Thank you for showing us. Thank you for proving it. And so now we look forward to you meeting with us in this time, in this place, as we celebrate, commemorate the cross at Calvary. In Jesus' name. Listen, um, in a moment, uh, the band's going to play, and I'm going to invite you to come forward to, part, to get the communion elements. And um, listen, I just want to give you some freedom in this time. I know some of you, you may want to get the communion elements, and you may want to pray here at the front. You may want to kneel down. That's fine. Um, those, some of you may want to go back to your seats. That's fine, too. You may want to find a quiet spot. That's fine. Um, but I'm just going to invite you to hold on to the elements. We're going to partake of them together. And um, that this is, this is a moment. This is a moment for you to really come clean with God. For you to really come back to God. To do business with God in a way where we, um, where we simply say, maybe, you're, maybe there's a sin you need to confess. Well, right now, this is the moment to confess it. If there's a promise you need to make, then make it. If there's forgiveness that you've been withholding, then listen, release it. That this is the moment to give to Him, to allow Him to work in you. So I'm going to invite you to come forward now as the band.